BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Check out the newest episode of the New York Historical Society's Must Listen To podcast, For the Ages, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein chats with an interesting mix of notable guests on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. In an insightful discussion, Rubenstein sits with best-selling author and former Secretary of Defense, Robert M. Gates, to discuss how the global perception of the United States has shifted since the end of the Cold War. Gates uses his first-hand knowledge to uncover how this transformation unfolded, how political leaders have wielded American power, and how future leaders can rise to the challenges to come. And then in one of our favorite episodes, Rubenstein interviews tennis great Billie Jean King. Their conversation highlights pivotal moments, including her historic victory in the 1973 Battle of the Sexes match and underlines her mission to incorporate equality into the larger fabric of the American story. That's the podcast for the ages, available on Apple and Spotify. The Bowery Boys episode 399, The Changing Lower East Side, a view from Seward Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a very special show about an area of New York City that is very close to our hearts. But it's an area that perhaps some of you have never actually explored very closely. We're talking about the southern area of Manhattan's Lower East Side, centered by the intersections of five streets and a plaza known as Strauss Square. Now, if that doesn't ring a bell, perhaps the area's most significant landmark will, the three-acre park known as Seward Park. And why is Seward Park significant, you might be asking? Because, I mean, aside from providing much-needed outdoor space to this packed neighborhood, it also contains the first municipally built playground in the United States. The playground, which opened in 1903, was built to serve one corner of the most densely populated neighborhood in the world. 
Now, we've talked generally about the Lower East Side on a great many shows. And in our show on Orchard Street, episode 183, we even analyzed one of the neighborhood's most important streets. But because there is just so much history that is busting out in each block of the Lower East Side, the history of Seward Park is very unique in its own way. This isn't a park like Prospect Park or Central Park where you go to get away from the city. Seward Park kind of lets the neighborhood spill right in, and its story reflects the changes of the streets around it. And so we'll be telling that story today in order to get a better sense of the entire neighborhood's history. So imagine you're standing at the entrance of the park or sitting Mm -hmm. within the park, looking out over the neighborhood. You see new trendy bars and restaurants along Canal Street, across from a tattoo parlor. Then you see Mm -hmm. Chinese and Puerto Rican-run businesses on East Broadway, around the corner from old St. Teresa's Catholic Church, And next to us on East Broadway, there's the Forward Building and just down the street from the Educational Alliance. I mean, so much history, and it's still changing. And we'll tell you many of these stories in today's show. We hope that this is a story that will resonate, especially with those who have at some point passed through this intersection, who have lived here, who still live here, including us. We both lived here. That's right, because as we're wrapping up our 15th year of podcasting here, and as we approach episode 400, we wanted to pay tribute to the place that gave birth to the Bowery Boys podcast, which was first recorded in 2007 in a tenement apartment across from Seward Park, just steps from all of the places that we'll be speaking about today. It's where history became our playground. (laughs) It did, yes. And later in the show, we'll be joined by staff members of the Forward newspaper, which is celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. In addition, we'll be discussing the newspaper's long-running advice column, Bintel Brief, which is thriving today as a podcast. So join us as we find a bench in Seward Park and watch the changing Lower East Side. So, Greg, as this area may not be familiar to many of our listeners who are thinking to themselves, wait, wait, which park? What are you talking about? (laughs) Why don't you situate us? Yes, you might even call this a hybrid place, an area that is both a subset of the Lower East Side and of Chinatown at the crossroads Mm -hmm. of several streets. So you've got Essex Street coming down from the north, Rutgers Street up from the south, Canal Street from the west, plus another little angled street named Division. And then you have East Broadway running through it from southwest to northeast. That is a lot to visualize. Too much, yes. I mean, <laughs> maybe pull it up on a map. But also anchoring the northeastern side of all of this is the lovely three-acre Seward Park, which we're pretending to sit in right now and, and to soak up the neighborhood's history. But all of those streets that you just mentioned collide here, creating a kind of plaza called Strauss Square. Yeah. Now, it's not as well known as Times Square and Union Square, obviously. And in fact, this area has gone by many names. In the past, 
and even today. You know, in particular, East Broadway is the eastern part of Little Fuzhou, which is this really fascinating district of shops and restaurants that are operated mostly by immigrants from the Fuzhou region of China. And then that little mini plaza, which is over by Division and Canal, now that in recent years has become a, quote, hot mini destination, currently closed off from traffic on the weekends and buzzing with activity. And that area's current nickname is Dime Square, uh, named for a prominent restaurant there called Dimes. It's a name that was once used somewhat jokingly, but, you know, alas, it seems to have caught on. At least it's caught on in European guidebooks. <laughs> Judging from the street scene, yes. Uh, actually, when we lived in that neighborhood, I just called it the Lower Lower East Side. Mm. So, so choose your fighter here. I would usually just say for shorthand, you just get out of the East Broadway subway stop and there you are. <laughs> yes. But actually, let me make it even easier to explain by taking our story back to the colonial era, the mid-1700s. Okay. okay, so today's subject and the area around it were once portions of two big farms or estates owned by two old, old families. Now, the northern farm in this area was owned by the Delancey family, which traced mm -hmm. back to the French settler Stephen Delancey, who arrived here in 1686, a very wealthy merchant whose progeny would become one of colonial New York's most elite families. The Delancey's. <laughs> um, today, of course, it, there's an, <laughs> a major Lower East Side thoroughfare named after this farm and, and the family, Delancey Street. Yeah, actually, as you'll see, much of our story today can actually be told via street names. So the Delanceys, that's the northern farm. Meanwhile, this mm -hmm. southern farm in this area was owned by the Rutgers family, and they traced back to Dutch settler Henrik Rutgers. Now, the Rutgers were beer brewers, and in 1728, one Harmanus Rutgers bought this property and opened among other things here, opened a brewery. Okay, so we have two colonial estates that are just adjacent to one another, mm -hmm. the Delanceys and the Rutgers south of them. What was the boundary between these two estates? That, Tom, ran through today's Strauss Square. The estates were originally divided by a rope walk, which you know were these common areas where they manufactured rope back in the day. But as mm -hmm. it became more developed, the rope walk then became a road. And since it served as a division line between the two farms, that road eventually was called Division Street. It's still called that today. <laughs> yes. Greg, these stories give me chills. I just want you to explain it to me one more time. <laughs> yeah, it was literally a dividing line, a division between these two mm -hmm. colonial farms. Now, in probably the most predictable part of today's show, by the start of the 19th century, these once spacious farms were being carved up into smaller parcels of land for small homes and businesses, even some fine federal-style homes. Now, today's Strauss Square Seward Park area here, well, for much of the 19th century, it was referred to as Rutgers Square. Mm -hmm. So we'll refer to it as Rutgers Square in the first half of the show here, but honestly, there just wasn't that much to Rutgers Square here at the very start. Okay, but we're calling it Rutgers Square, name for the farm, 
on which it mm-hmm. originally sat. Yes. But by the 1830s and 40s, New York's wealthier classes were already coalescing around lower Fifth Avenue and up on Broadway. Few of them were living in these federal-style townhouses down mm-hmm. in this neighborhood. That's right. So then, as these fine homes were abandoned, this area became cheaper to live in. Right in time for the very first massive wave of Irish immigration, those fleeing the potato famine in the 1840s, joined also by a wave of German immigrants. Now, these immigrant groups, of course, immediately transformed all of New York. The city's population quadrupled between the years of 1830 and 1860. And by the start of the following decade, 1870, New York which was just Manhattan, keep in mind, New York had almost one million residents. And so then as the wealthier classes moved up the island of Manhattan, immigrant communities developed down here on the east side. And specific to our story today, these old blocks that were once the Delancey and the Rutgers Farms were soon lined with cheap early tenements and these converted homes. Outside of some, you know, scattered federal townhouses here and there, are there any significant landmarks that survive from these early years? Yes, an old stone church down on the corner of Henry and Rutgers. The former Rutgers Presbyterian Church, which was founded in 1842, on the spot of an older church where the Rutgers family actually worshipped. But within Mm. 10 years, the area had been So utterly transformed by Irish and German immigrants, the church reflected that change in 1863 when it became the Catholic Church of St. Teresa's. And as we explore the changing nature of the Lower East Side today in this show, it should be said that St. Teresa's continues to embody that change. Today, the church is not only very active, it holds mass every Sunday in English Chinese, both Cantonese and Mandarin, and in Spanish. And when it became a Catholic church in 1863, churches were providing more than just, you know, spiritual guidance. The neighborhood's residents were in serious need of food and health services and jobs. I mean, this was an era even before major social services or settlement houses or or major charities even existed. Yeah, the the area around Rutgers Square was a mix of German and Irish, right? German shops and saloons lined the street, giving the entire east side up to 14th Street the nickname Klein Deutschland, Little Germany. But the Lower East Side was also heavily Irish as well. We're not far from Five Points, after all. And the city was doing little to alleviate the overcrowding the hunger, and the resulting crime and decay that came from that sort of neglect. The residents had to turn to places like their local houses of worship, but they also turned to politicians who needed their votes. And one man managed that, a man named William Boss Tweed, a local boy here born down on Cherry Street, and now the boss of the Democratic machine Tammany Hall, which leaned into the Irish immigrant communities of the Lower East Side to garner power. 
He also successfully spearheaded a wide-reaching system of graft and corruption that lasted for decades, before crashing into the courts in the 1870s and landing him, Tweed, in jail. Yes, he was eventually convicted, in fact, and thrown into prison. He died in 1878 in the Ludlow Street Jail on Grand Street, just two blocks away from our intersection here. But he also provided for the poor and the working class here. And he gave them a voice. If they gave Tammany candidates their votes, there would be huge Tammany rallies here in Rutgers Square. So many, in fact, that with Tammany's rise in the 1860s, the square was then colloquially renamed Tweed Plaza. For instance, to celebrate the signing of a new city charter, which would heavily favor Tweed and the Democrats, a massive rally was held here. To quote from Dennis Lynch's biography on Boss Tweed, this is how Tweed was greeted. Quote, on Saturday night, the whole east side tried to crowd into Tweed Plaza, which was strung with soft, glowing lanterns of grotesque shapes and countless in number where a cannon thundered a welcome as a torchlight procession approached the specially built rostrum, whereon Fink's Washington band was blaring the star-spangled banner. Wow. So, 150 years ago, this intersection was named for the man who literally represents corruption <laughs> to us today, Boss Tweed. And there were even plans, believe it or not, to erect a statue of Boss Tweed here in the <laughs> plaza. They'd even collected mm -hmm. thousands of dollars for the cause. I wonder where that money went. <laughs> One can only imagine. But it was a cause that, that fell through, no surprise, as his corruption schemes became exposed in the press. So quietly, people began referring to it again as Rutgers Square. And by 1875... With anti-corruption fervor in full force in the city, the square even became the site of anti-Tammany rallies. But of course, this would not be the last time that the square would be a focal point for protests and political unrest. And that's because the, the ethnic makeup of the residents living in the area around Rutgers Square, and actually on the entire Lower East Side, by this point was just beginning to change. In the 1880s, large ocean vessels began carrying new immigrant groups that were coming to America. And now they were coming in greater numbers from Russia and Eastern Europe. And as these groups go through the immigrant processing stations, most of those who stayed in New York settled in those old tenement quarters. And so by the 1880s, the area around Rutgers Square took on a very different character and very crowded character. The neighborhood was gasping for fresh air. We'll get to the creation of Seward Park and more stories of the changing Lower East Side right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, so here we are, Greg, sitting today on our little bench here in Seward Park, looking up at the buildings that line the streets around us. Today, these are almost entirely four, five, and six-story brick apartment buildings, mostly tenement style. Yes, dating from the late 19th century. Now, I was comparing two old maps of these blocks, one map from the 1860s -hmm. and another from the 1890s. And you see by looking at them how these blocks changed by the end of the 19th century. They had been mostly smaller and mostly wooden buildings here. But by the 1890s, these had nearly all been replaced by these larger brick tenements. And by the 1890s, you know, just to keep in mind visually here, these tenements would have been on both sides of Essex Street Mm -hmm. because, of course, Seward Park hadn't been built yet. There were tenements here as well. Many that had even dingier rear tenements in what had been their backyards. And most of these tenements were inhumanely overcrowded and lacked fresh air and sunlight. And I can only imagine how bad things must have been in the rear tenements. Yeah, not good. Most of the later buildings 
were dumbbell-style tenements uh, that were named for their shape, which created kind of small air shafts between them when they were built all in a row. Um, But unfortunately, those air shafts were way too narrow, really, to do much good. And just as an aside here, thousands of those old dumbbell apartment buildings still stand in the city. Thousands of people live in them. In fact, I used to live in one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many are still around. However, in most cases, far fewer people, you know, live in each of these apartments today. So the experience is not the same. Um, At the time, it would have been truly awful. And these buildings would have completely surrounded us. Early housing reformers fought for new and improved building laws, including the journalist Jacob Rees, who included photos of these apartments and really vivid descriptions of them in his 1890 book, how the other half lives. And because of these efforts, New York State passed building reforms in 1901 that required that buildings be constructed to allow in more fresh air and more light. For new buildings. That's right. So in many cases, landlords then just let the old ones stand. And many of them are still standing today, including some of these right across and around Seward Park. For a little taste of this, you can go inside some of them over at the Tenement Museum at Orchard and Delancey Street. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see photos that were taken down here in the 1890s, you you can't help but notice just how jam-packed the streets were. Mm -hmm. You had push carts, vendors, shoppers, people just hanging out, kids playing in the streets. the, The population of the Lower East Side tripled during these decades from 171,000 people in 1850 to 542,000 in 1910. The neighborhood's density was more than three times that of the next densest neighborhood in New York. In his 2016 book, City of Dreams, Tyler Anbinder writes, quote, none of the most congested neighborhoods in the world today, in Dhaka, Nairobi, and Mumbai, are as densely populated as were the most crowded neighborhoods of the Lower East Side in the decades before World War I. And why do you think people came to this particular neighborhood? Like, why did they come to Essex Street? Well, many of these new immigrants spoke Yiddish, which was becoming a more prevalent language in this neighborhood. And they could easily find places of worship here. And also an apartment, because many of the earlier German-born immigrants by this point, had moved north, you know, by the 1880s. And they could find work down here as well, I'm sure. Right, because many German tailors working out of this neighborhood offered them jobs making clothes, you know, where, again, they could speak Yiddish. And do you think we would have seen signs of garment work, like here in particular in this intersection in the late 19th century? Yeah, I think we would have seen and probably heard signs, too. I mean, the Mm. sounds of sewing machines, you know, coming from these windows around us. Remember that most of the garment work in the late 1800s was done inside tenements themselves, in those same crowded spaces where families squeezed into one or two rooms. And everybody in the family worked, even the children, you know, they, they bundled up the clothing articles, they raced through the streets making deliveries. So lots of garment work here in the neighborhood, although not everyone worked in that industry, of course. Many men moved to careers 
you know, as retailers, shop owners, mm-hmm. you had peddlers, butchers, and bakers. And also, nearly all of these tenements would have had shops on the ground floor as well. Now, reformers were trying to alleviate some of these terrible conditions. People like Lillian Wald, who founded the organization that would become the Henry Street Settlement in 1893. And the settlement movement, generally speaking, provided health care services, you know, mostly in this area, the Lower East Side. And the Henry Street Settlement in particular also later provided social services mm-hmm. and recreational and arts programming. And they still do today. Yes. And another reformer, Charles B. Stover of the University Settlement, another settlement, was also trying to find safe places for the neighborhood children to play. There was no place to go for a kid except, of course, the streets of the city, which were incredibly dangerous. They were, yeah. And so these and other reformers uh, lobbied for new neighborhood parks, not just down here, but all over town. And it it worked. And the city decided to construct a new park right here in this corner of the Lower East Side, one of the most congested places in the city. I found a small legal notice that was printed in January 1897 in the New York Times that announced that they had acquired legal title to the land in the buildings that were sitting right here at the time, right where today's park now stands. And nearly all of them were tenements. Taken by eminent domain. Mm -hmm. The city could just acquire them and wipe them all away. In this case, to make life better for the neighborhood. So was it immediately opened as a park? Unfortunately, no. Uh, They raised it, but then it seems like the city didn't have the cash to do much with it. Later that year, in December 1897, the city named the space, this sort of park in progress, for William H. Seward, who had been a Republican politician and governor of New York and senator and secretary of state under Abraham Lincoln. And he had also negotiated the purchase of the Alaska Territory. So the only problem then is that when they named it after him in 1897, it sounds like it wasn't really much more than just a heap of rubble. Rubble that, you know, on a winter's day might have looked like the Alaska Territory. (laughs) Could have. It undoubtedly looked better covered with snow. I'll give you that. Uh, The following April of 1898, the New York Sun carried an article about attempts to raise money to just level off the park which they said was, quote, in an unsanitary condition and a disgrace to the neighborhood, besides being a battleground for all the boys of that section of the east side. So not only was the park in limbo, it was popular with street toughs, (laughs) with like little rascals. (laughs) I'm thinking it was probably a little bit more dangerous than Alfalfa and his girlfriend. What's her name? Sally? Darla. Darla. And so in to clean up this whole mess came Lillian Wald and Charles Stover, who in 1898 had formed the Outdoor Recreation League, which was advocating for the construction of safe outdoor playgrounds around the city. Not just parks, but actual playgrounds that had equipment and recreational facilities. They were sometimes referred to as open-air gymnasiums. So their group constructed one of these playgrounds in 1898 at 53rd and 11th Avenues, and then they turned their attention to this new messy park on the Lower East Side. And so in that year, in 1898, 
the the Outdoor Recreation League chose to build one of these new open-air gymnasiums here, and they raised the money themselves, but also with the help of neighborhood children who collected about $200 worth of penny subscriptions. Maybe that sounds like something the little rascals would do. (laughs) But was the city helping them out, though? Like, did the city pay for anything? No, the city remained skeptical. And they made the league, you know, sign off on all kinds of conditions. You know, the league would be responsible for injuries. The league would staff the playground, etc. But the work went on, and this new outdoor playground opened on June 3rd, 1899, to great fanfare. The New York Tribune described it like this. Quote, beside the gymnasium proper, with parallel bars, vaulting horse, springboard, jumping board, ladders, poles, climbing ropes, flying rings, vaulting bars, punching bags, and other apparatus, (laughs) there's a well-laid running track and a large space is set away for a basketball arena. Sounds so elaborate. Well, and that was just the gymnasium. I mean, this full-page article goes on to describe the children's playground with sandboxes and kindergarten area. Um, There was an area where, quote, boys may teeter without danger from nails or rolling barrels, which are the usual accompaniments to this, to the homemade seesaws. I have never contemplated how children used to make their own seesaws. Sounds pretty dangerous. (laughs) Exactly, with nails all over the place. And they didn't need to anymore. It sounds like opening day was complete mayhem, with the New York Times reporting that more than 10,000 people crammed into the park. They had this elaborate ceremony. I mean, the Star-Spangled Banner was recited by a thousand children. There were speeches by aldermen. But the Times reported, quote, there was such confusion that the speakers could not be heard more than five yards away. And I mean, this sounds pretty great and all, but I really am hung up on the fact that the city is not paying for this. Right. Like, why on earth was this not a city project? Well, I mean, this was a big debate at the time. I mean, it's bigger than just a park here. You know, people were debating what the scope of the city government was here in the park, but also all kinds of services. The subway was being built at the same time by a private company. The, you know, the elevated railroads were private companies. And let's face it, New York had seen so much corruption and swindling, you know, in its past. And especially during the Tweed years, speaking of. Which had led to reformers being elected, right? Like Seth Lowe, who was elected mayor of now the unified, consolidated city of New York in 1902. And Lowe believed that the city should provide more recreational services. And so with his new parks commissioner, William Wilcox, the city took over the private playgrounds that had been started by this Outdoor Recreation League, and this included Seward Park. And then the city spent a lot of money improving the parks and these playgrounds, building much nicer, you know, permanent facilities and better playgrounds. And so then on October 17th, 1903, the city officially opened their first new and improved permanent playground here at Seward Park. So let me make sure that I have this distinction right. This playground here at Seward Park was the first playground built and paid for by a city in the United States. That is its claim to fame. Yes. It was officially dedicated on October 17th, 1903, 
with 15,000 people attending in the rain. So they did it all over again the next week on October 24th. The Sun proclaimed, quote, children own Seward Park. And they reported that at least 15,000 people crammed into the park for this postponed program and that at least two-thirds of them were boys and girls, and that this crowd positively drowned out Commissioner Wilcox with their crazy enthusiasm. It just seems like they would have learned their lesson by now that you don't have these long opening speeches for a children's playground. (laughs) You should just go ahead and let the kids play. And there would be much more to dedicate in the coming years. Um, In 1909, the park got its own library, when the lovely brick and limestone Seward Park branch of the New York Public Library opened, um, which was part of the library building spree that had been funded through the gift of Andrew Carnegie. But there had been a branch library in the neighborhood. Yes, the downtown branch of the Aguilar Library had been operating out of another institution right across East Broadway uh, from Seward Park, the Educational Alliance, which is a social institution that was formed in 1889 to provide classes and other services to the neighborhood's Eastern European Jewish residents with the aim of helping them adapt to life in America. It was funded by American Jewish philanthropists, including Isidore Strauss, who had immigrated to the U.S. in the 1850s, done very well in business, and who, along with his brother Nathan, owned the Abraham and Strauss department store in Brooklyn and took over ownership of R.H. Macy and Company in the 1890s. They would open the Macy's in Herald Square in 1902. And both Strauss brothers were active philanthropists, and Isidore served as president of the Educational Alliance. Unfortunately, Isidore's story has a tragic ending, as he and his wife Ida perished on the Titanic, which sank in 1912. His brother Nathan, however, would live until 1931 and continued to be active in philanthropic causes, including at the Educational Alliance, and more on him in a moment. So Tom, in, in planning this show, we were discussing like why, why this corner of New York City isn't better known you know, overall, like, why its history isn't specifically celebrated as a part of Lower East Side history. Yeah, there are very few books on Seward Park. I even mentioned Seward Park to a friend recently who's a regular listener to the show and knows a lot about New York history. He didn't even know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it has something to do with the constant change that has flowed through here. You know, places change in New York to fit the needs of a new arriving group of residents. And so I think it might be kind of hard to imagine the streets around Seward Park as they were in the early 20th century when this was the heart of American Jewish life. So much of the Jewish Lower East Side has moved on to other places today, Mm -hmm. but you can still find landmarks down here like the Eldridge Street Synagogue, which we devoted a show to back in 2019. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's episode 304. Now, in that show, we discussed the dynamics of Jewish life here in the Lower East Side. The first wave of German Jewish immigrants had moved out by this time, many assimilating into mainstream society and inventing a new way of being a Jewish American called Reform Judaism. 
Meanwhile, these newly arriving immigrants from Russia and Eastern Europe were very culturally different from that first wave. They held on to specific regional customs about their faith, and perhaps more importantly, as you mentioned earlier, they spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was commonly heard all over the place, from the theater to the synagogue, and of course, on the busy streets, lined with the push carts. The, the streets today are certainly busy, but just imagine them lined with push cart salesmen. Just all the commotion. And in particular, on top of the many other items one could have purchased over here, none were perhaps more famous than this district's pickles. Essex Street was actually known as the Pickle District, where you could find dozens of salesmen selling pickles for a penny from large wooden barrels. Yum. So (laughs) as we continue to, to paint this picture here of the old Lower East Side with its distinct sights and sounds, remember that it also smells and tastes like the best pickles in America. (laughs) That and bagels, those are the predominant smells. Mm. Amazing. But while some aspects of Jewish life manifesting around the park may today seem quote-unquote traditional, in fact, there were radical political and religious ideas that were being discussed and debated in cafes and restaurants around the park. Tom, you, you've you been to Europe a few times, haven't you? Yes? I've been around. <laughs> Many old European cities have a vibrant cafe scene that have at some point doubled as laboratories for intellectual debate. Now, imagine you know that idea right here, because after all, most of the people who lived around the park were either from Russia or from Eastern Europe or was related to somebody who was. So on Canal, in particular, there were several cafes that would nightly be filled with Jewish writers, religious thinkers, socialists, anarchists, and even stars of the Yiddish theater. Places like Zeidlin's Cafe at 126 Canal Street, or Schreiber's Cafe at 33 Canal Street. So like on the exact spot of what we're calling Dime Square today. (laughs) Yes, Schreiber's is actually next door to the address which houses the bar Clandestino today, which Ah, if you're familiar with Dime Square, you know Clandestino. Um, Now, the most famous of these places, though, was probably Herrick's Cafe at 141 Division Street. According to author Shahar M. Pinkster, during the 1890s and early 1900s, Herrick's Cafe was the gathering place of the East Side intelligentsia and especially Yiddish writers and journalists. There, the various factions and the fractions of the factions met nightly at the round tables with their red and black checkered cloths, smoked Russian cigarettes, downed oceans of tea, and consumed pounds of Hungarian strudel. Unquote. Yum. Wow. <laughs> to have sipped tea and eaten strudel with the various factions and the, and the fractions of the factions. <laughs> and sometimes those factions would fraction, would fracture here on Division mm. Street, and most violently, actually. In September of 1898, as most of the other Jewish establishments in the neighborhood were closing for the holiday Yom Kippur, Herricks decided to stay open past sundown. And its cafe was packed with young Jewish men in defiance of the tradition. 
Now, this inspired an angry mob who smashed the cafe's windows, a move that only invigorated the owners who opened the next day, and that then spawned another riot with hundreds of people in the streets. According to the New York Times, quote, the Orthodox Jews are very bitter against the Herricks and declare that they will drive the restaurant away while the socialistic Jewish declare their intention of supporting it loyally. The police think that the place is likely to be a center of trouble for some time to come, unquote. And so I assume that Herricks was indeed a center of trouble? Yeah, well, we might call it a good kind of trouble, as these cafes were often meeting places for those in the burgeoning labor union movement, although it was mostly men in these places. So it's only half of the story in terms of the political activism of the era. Women and girls, however, many of whom were employed in the garment trades, were at the forefront of the labor movement. Women like Clara Lemlich, who we mentioned in our 2020 show on the shirtwaist strike of 1909. In fact, Clara was among the group of women who organized the very first shirtwaist makers union in 1906 in a hall at 206 East Broadway near the park. So so obviously the spirit of uprising and workers' rights were being manifested all through the neighborhood, not just over tea in these intellectual cafes. But a good many of the men in these spots were journalists from a small district right around the corner on East Broadway, where several Jewish publications made their home, a street that is sometimes called the Yiddish Publishers Row. What's remarkable is that Yiddish newspapers barely existed at all before the 1890s, but according to author Tony Michaels, quote, by 1917, there were 11 Yiddish dailies with a total circulation of about 650,000, in addition to a range of weeklies, monthlies, quarterlies, and miscellaneous others, unquote. And many of those papers started on or moved to East Broadway. And they represented so many different kinds of political discourse, as you can imagine. For instance, Der Morgen Zernal, or the Jewish Morning Journal, was an Orthodox Yiddish publication which began in 1901. On the other end of the political spectrum, Free Arbeiterstimme, or the Free Voice of Labor, was an anarchist publication which began in 1890. Then there was also the influential Der Tag, or The Day, which purported to hold itself above any one type of ideology, and that also was published here at 185 East Broadway. And would all of these newspapers and journals publish here? Not all. You know, many had offices scattered throughout the Lower East Side, But in 1912, a new point of gravity would be constructed here that would draw many newspapers to this square, a building sometimes called the Lower East Side's first skyscraper. Ah, you must be talking about the Forward Building at 175 East Broadway, which is a landmarked building. Yeah, the Jewish Daily Forward is probably the best-known Yiddish publication in America, founded in 1897, a socialist-leaning newspaper that championed trade unionism and eventually became a vital source of news for Jewish Americans. In 1912, 
the newspaper constructed a 10-story building here on East Broadway on the site of its old tenement headquarters. Over the years, it would house not only their offices, but would rent space to many union organizations for meetings and rallies, and they even rented to other Jewish publications. I mean, there's nothing more New York than a publisher building itself a skyscraper. Joseph Pulitzer did it down at the World Building. Uh, the Times did it downtown, then again in, you know, in Midtown. So they were making a claim, reflecting their success as a newspaper, but also saying, our causes matter. In fact, the forward was very central to many organized strikes, especially those in the garment industry. And for decades, from this building, the newspaper also published a Bentil Brief, a very legendary advice column that managed to capture the everyday life of working-class Jewish residents, perhaps better than anything that existed back then. And while the foreword might have been distributed throughout the country, it had a national readership, it certainly found a very large audience here on the Lower East Side. My favorite photograph of the Lower East Side was taken by Lewis Hine, of a team of newsies who are standing on the Jewish forward steps and they're they're all armed with newspapers and preparing to take them out into the streets to sell. Of course, uh, let's remember that there were newsies running around in the streets as well. <laughs> Another thing to add to the visual diorama <laughs> we are creating here. Now, we'll get to more forward and more Bintel Brief at the end of our show, but I just wanted to contrast this building to another skyscraper, a sort of architectural pairing just a few blocks away down on Canal Street. To this day, these two buildings frame the neighborhood. It was a building finished the same year as the forward building called the Jarmolowski Bank Building designed in a modern Renaissance style and nicknamed in its day the Shrine to American Capitalism. But the bank's founder, Sender Jarmolowski, died before the building opened, so his wife and sons took over the business. The Shrine to American Capitalism. Wow. I mean, what a difference a couple of blocks makes. It's quite, quite a contrast from the socialist-leaning forward building. Yeah, and unfortunately, it turned out to also be a shrine to misfortune. When Sender Jarmolowski was alive, he was one of the most esteemed and respected men on the Lower East Side, which allowed his bank to survive during several stark financial crises. When other banks failed, his bank survived. But he died in 1912, and... Unfortunately, there was another very big crisis on the horizon, World War I. On October 31st, 1914, thousands of people gathered outside the bank looking to withdraw money to send to desperate relatives back home. According to the New York Tribune, quote, reserves from three police stations battled until the crowd had been dispersed and then took two women to the Clinton Street Station, charged with inciting a riot. The bank eventually failed in 1917 and was promptly closed by the state. And in later decades, the building housed other banks and garment manufacturers. Although from my memory of the neighborhood, it always seemed kind of vacant Mm -hmm. when we lived down here. I mean, I do remember seeing garment sweatshops there in the late 90s, kind of seemed to be operating around the clock. 
Well, in keeping with our theme of the changing Lower East Side, Tom, today the Jarmolowski building is a luxury hotel named Nine Orchard. And then over at the forward building, so our other big skyscraper here, well, the newspaper moved out in the 1970s, and today, uh, like so many things, it's luxury condos. Ah, but no matter how many celebrities or fabulous cocktail bars open up in the neighborhood, the Seward Park area will forever be at the center of American Jewish history. And in 1931, that legacy became part of the name. When the city named that triangular plot of land in front of Seward Park, that place that up until now we've been calling Rutgers Square, they renamed it Strauss Square for Nathan Strauss, the co-owner of Macy's, alongside his brother Isidore. And like his brother, Nathan was also a prominent philanthropist who had served the needs of the Lower East Side. And now we need to continue on into the mid-20th century here, but we can't move on without talking about one more very unusual ruin, if you will, an abandoned building at 31 Canal Mm -hmm. Street. Right. It wasn't all cafes and Yiddish theater. By the 1920s, there were also moving pictures. And this was, after all, an overcrowded neighborhood in need of some flickering amusement. In 1927, the Lowe's Canal Theater was constructed, operated by movie mogul Marcus Lowe. Believe it or not, this movie palace at 31 Canal still sits in an abandoned state. It was landmarked by the city in 2010, but not much has been done here with it. Nothing yet. It would would just be marvelous if some multi-billionaire, you know, instead of investing in, I don't know, Twitter or some (laughs) space program... You know, would take some of his pocket money and renovate this space back to its original glory. Exactly. Well, maybe instead we could turn to one of the famous graduates of Seward Park High School, located a couple blocks north at Essex and Grand Street. Now, Tom, do you remember me talking earlier about Boss Tweed and how he died in jail? Yes, in the Ludlow Street Jail, I believe. Well, that high school was built on the site of Ludlow Street Jail in 1929. So, yes, there may be ghosts of Boss Tweed disrupting students, changing people's grades. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, thousands (laughs) of young men and women have graduated from this high school over the decades, and many that listeners are probably familiar with. People like Tony Curtis, Estelle Getty, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Jerry Stiller, and, and on and on. Today, by the way, that high school is known actually as Seward Park Campus and hosts several different high schools. So glad to get Estelle Getty into this show, Greg. (laughs) Well, we're going to bring Seward Park and Strauss Square up to the present day right after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So we have witnessed a lot of history passing by here in Seward Park. You brought us up through the 1920s. Yes, all the way to 1931, when Rutgers Square, over there in our imagination here, became (laughs) Strauss Square. Right, and by this time, the neighborhood's ethnic makeup had started to change as well. It was becoming less Jewish, a change that was brought on by several factors, including the opening of the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903 and the Manhattan Bridge in 1909. These bridges helped depopulate the neighborhood. You Mm -hmm. could live in Brooklyn, but still commute in for work or for worship or for shopping. Exactly. And Lower East Siders didn't only move to Brooklyn, but also uptown Manhattan, other boroughs. They moved to the suburbs. And, you know, many were no longer working down here either, because by this time, most of the garment jobs had moved up to the West 30s. And, Greg, another piece of infrastructure would soon come along that helped residents easily come and go as well. Um, City bikes? (laughs) City bikes would come later. No. Um, (laughs) look, Look just across Canal Street to the East Broadway station of the New York City subway. Construction... On this line, part of the IND, Independent Subway Line, began in 1929, and this station was up and running on January 1st, 1936. So suddenly you can be whisked about and arrive and depart this neighborhood for only a nickel. Yes, especially once the Rutgers Subway Tunnel under the East River opened in April of 1936. Now you could ride under the river to York Street in Dumbo in just minutes. And then, of course, it continued along today's F-Line as the Culver Line, deeper into Brooklyn. Even still, though, the area kept a very strong Jewish identity and presence, and Mm -hmm. many Jewish families stayed, even with more residential opportunities opening up in the five boroughs. Yes, many of them moved actually into new middle-class co-ops that were constructed in the mid-century along Grand Street, um, known as Co-op Village. We'll talk about them in a second. But also, you know, there were so many Jewish shops and kosher food stores and restaurants that continued to thrive for decades. Essex Street was lined with Judaica stores and yarmulke shops throughout the 20th century. I mean, remember walking along Essex and hearing those sewing machines running when we lived here in the 90s? I do remember that, actually, you know, walking by those open shop doors, especially on summer's evenings. Mm -hmm. But there were also, you know, great restaurants and bakeries 
Girdle's oh, Bake Shop yes. opened in 1914, just across from the park on Hester Street. Mm-hmm. And it remained open all the way to 2007, actually. I loved Girdle's. I mean, it just made the neighborhood smell so good. Like Rugala, <laughs> remember? <laughs> today, mm-hmm. today, that space is a brand new condo. Um, mm-hmm. And the restaurants, too. I mean, before our time... Just south of Seward Park at 165 East Broadway, at the corner of Rutgers Street, stood the Garden Cafeteria, which was a kosher dairy restaurant that opened in 1941 and remained open until 1983. It was a neighborhood favorite, serving journalists here from Yiddish Newspaper Row Mm -hmm. that you were talking about, intellectuals, activists, hungry neighbors. It served everybody. (laughs) I would have been a fly on the wall, fly in the soup. And listening to those conversations, <laughs> this, this was an extension of that early century cafe scene. By the time we moved in in the 90s, it had become the Wing Shun restaurant. And the building is still there today. It's, it's Wu's Wonton King restaurant. But, you know, things were changing here on the Lower East Side, as they always have been. And that included um, the sort of ethnic makeup at the neighborhood in the mid-century as large numbers of Puerto Rican residents moved to the Lower East Side starting in the 1940s. Puerto Ricans had been granted U.S. citizenship by the Jones Act of 1917, and by 1960, there were more than 600,000 Puerto Ricans in New York City. And here on the Lower East Side, they were joined by immigrants from the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Mexico, and elsewhere. And since we're talking housing, in many cases, those new arrivals would move into those really old tenements. Tenements that, by this point in the story, are in some cases over 100 years old. Yes, and people were also moving into all of the new public housing that was also going up at the time. And of course, with these changes, that brings a new energy, a new vibe, I guess is the word, a new food, a new language, mm-hmm. Spanish to mm-hmm. the Lower East Side. And you know, this wasn't the only major change happening here in the mid-20th century. No, because Asian immigrants also started arriving in New York in huge numbers after the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, which abolished previous laws that had established national quotas for immigration and actually had restricted or prevented immigration entirely from Asia. So with the change here in the 60s, just thousands and thousands of immigrants from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and other Asian nations started arriving in the mid-1960s, settling into Chinatowns throughout the city, including in Manhattan's Chinatown, which had been located sort of southwest of our intersection here. But of course, with so many new arrivals, that actually caused that old Chinatown, the Manhattan Chinatown, to grow and to grow eastward, stretching up into the Lower East Side, in particular dominating East Broadway from Chatham Square all the way to where we're sitting here in Strauss Square, a sort of new Chinatown, as I mentioned before, called Little Fuzhou. And this mix, then, along with an influx of African Americans in the mid-20th century and then also a new population of artists and writers and others who were attracted to the Lower East Side by the low rents in the 1970s and 80s, that mix has continued to characterize the neighborhood to this day, even as it becomes obviously more expensive and gentrified. 
According to the NYU Furman Center, in 2019, the Lower East Side and Chinatown had a population of about 167,000 people, of which Hispanic or Latino residents represent about 25%, Asians about 33%, the white population about 30%, and African Americans about 8%. But let's rewind to the mid-century here and talk housing for a second. Okay. People were living in these tenements, but how is the city dealing with this need for new and better housing? Well, during the Depression, Mayor LaGuardia had been determined to do something about the city's housing crisis, right? These tenements were deteriorating, and people were homeless. And so the city created the New York City Housing Authority in 1934, which helped construct and open the First Houses, which was the name of the first public housing on the Lower East Side up at East 3rd Street in 1935. And from there, the housing authority, NYCHA, was off and running. They could classify deteriorating tenements as, quote, slums, and then demolish them and replace them with new modern public housing. And we've already seen this in the story, actually, so far, right? There were dingy old tenements that used to stand on the spot of today's Seward Park. That's right. They were wiped away. They were cleared away. So what areas are they clearing next? Well, they started really all along the East River waterfront. For example, just two blocks south of Seward Park are the LaGuardia Houses, which opened in 1957, and the Rutgers Houses in 1965. And another group of houses, NYCHA's Seward Park Extension buildings, were completed in 1974. Those are just right at at Grant in Essex and on Broom Street, north of Seward Park. And most of those buildings look pretty similar, right? Mm -hmm. There's mostly tall brick towers with large playgrounds in many cases, but many are in desperate need of repair today. But when they opened, they were seen by housing advocates as a big improvement over these old slummy tenements. But there's more housing about, Greg, because when you go to Seward Park today, you see other large brick towers that are seemingly looming overhead, right? Those Mm -hmm. are part of the Seward Park Housing Corporation or or the Seward Park Co-op. Yes, those Four very large brick apartment buildings with lots of balconies. I Mm -hmm. think that's one of the most distinguishing features between Grand and East Broadway overlooking the park. Those are 20 stories tall. Construction Mm. here began in 1959, and these were sponsored by the United Housing Foundation, which was a group of cooperative housing societies and nonprofits and labor unions. And these were built as limited equity cooperatives, meaning that these modern and rather spacious apartments were affordable for middle-class families to buy. And and they remained affordable because you basically only could get your initial investment back when you sold them. And these Seward Park co-ops were actually part of a larger group of co-ops located along Grand Street, which together are called Cooperative Village. And here, starting in 1955 at Seward Park, blocks of tenements just north and east of Seward Park were acquired by the city, demolished, and then streets were demapped to make way for this massive middle-class development. And so today, are these buildings still limited equity co-ops? Oof. Uh, The short answer is no. In the 1990s, the shareholders, uh, the, the residents 
voted to become a full equity co-op, and today the apartments sell at market rate. And the same process unfolded at the other co-op village properties as well. And so, like pretty much most stories about New York, when we get to this point of the story, we always end up talking about real estate. (laughs) Actually, we've been talking about housing for the whole show. But some of this new development, by the way, provided for new retail space along Grand Street as well, including in 1960, when Kosar's Bialis, the oldest Bialy bakery in the United States, moved into 367 Grand Street, just north of the park, and the neighborhood has smelled like delicious, fresh <laughs> Bialis ever since. Actually, it probably smelled like Bialis before, too. It makes one of the more aromatic, charming mm. strolls that, <laughs> along this stretch of Grand Street. But don't forget the donut plant is also on the same block, speaking of like delicious smelling things. How could I? I mean, handmade donuts, bespoke donuts, if you will, started by baker Mark Israel in 1994. He moved into this spot at 379 Grand Street, just north of Seward Park in 2000. I think we might have actually stood in line on opening day, Greg. I'm pretty sure that we did. <laughs> I don't remember us doing it, but I think I remember the donuts. By this point in the story, it sounds like things are getting a little trendy around here and most likely Mm -hmm. less affordable. Yes. And dare I say that I think we even saw all of this happening, right? From the late 90s when we moved in to today. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the time, we both found affordable apartments here and we did watch quite a few changes take place. And many good changes, by the way, like improvements to Seward Park itself, which Mm -hmm. was renovated in 1999. And then, of course, there was another beautiful restoration 20 years later. I don't think it's ever looked better. But, you know, we also saw places like Girdle's Bake Shop close and the Judaica shops sort of disappear one by one, along with, don't forget, Gus's Pickles and, you know, countless other examples. We saw some buildings go down. We saw several luxury condos go up. I think that we also saw that this neighborhood, which had been known for years throughout this entire show for its low rents, become much more expensive. And obviously, you know, I think we were also part of that change. To be fair, that story has been playing out all over the city. But I think that we really fell in love with New York's history here. Because for Mm -hmm. one thing... You know, so many of these 19th century buildings are still standing, but now they house fewer people who are paying much higher rents. And this is an irony that author Lucy Sante, in the introduction of a 2016 edition of How the Other Half Lives, points out, writing, quote, It is hard to imagine what Jacob Reese would make of the fact that in Lower Manhattan, the dumbbell tenements he regarded as halfway measures at best, their tiny rooms and narrow air shafts just marginally acceptable, are not only still standing in great numbers, but have become middle-class habitations with correspondingly high rents. Well, some of them are rent-stabilized, right? Like, like in, in fact, your old apartment, right, in 2007, which is actually where we recorded our first episode of the Bowery Boys podcast. Mm-hmm. And looking out that window at most of the things that we have spoken about today. Yes, and we would record there for years. Sometimes recording at your East Broadway apartment, I mean, depended <laughs> <That's true. laughs> which apartment was less noisy uh, and who was doing what in the courtyard. 
But, you know, one of the buildings that we could see very clearly from my apartment was, of course, the Forward Building, which Mm -hmm. just represents this newspaper that was such an institution in the neighborhood there on Yiddish Newspaper Row. So it's our pleasure to now dive deeper into the story behind that paper. And it is our pleasure to be joined by Gina Green and Lynn Harris, hosts of the Forward's A Bintel Brief podcast, and Hannah Pollock, the Forward's archivist. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Shalom Aleichem. Well, let's, <laughs> Hannah, let's actually start with you and just kind of get an overview of the origin story of the publication itself, of the Forward, or rather the Forward. Did I say that correctly? The Forwards? Yes, we're, we're actually both today. We're Forward and Forwards, but Forwards is how old-timey New Yorkers, anybody who's aware of our Yiddish publishing history, likes to call it the Forwards. What were the objectives with creating this paper uh, back in the late 19th century? And yeah, where did that name come from, actually? Easiest answer. I know people really struggle with that, but it's actually they borrowed it from the Social Democrat paper of Germany and the movement at the time. You know, if you go back and look at our older editions from the first day in 1897 in April, the placement above the Yiddish masthead, which said Vorwärts in Yiddish, was Vorwärts in German and Forward in English. And I, I don't really have to tell you guys this, but that... German was one of the lingua francas in New York City at the time. So it totally made sense for them to do that. And, you know, from the get-go, that was their goal. Their goal was to actually, you know, look at European socialism, which was considered very theoretical at the time, and really kind of morph out a more American, more practical version of social democracy, but especially looking to the influx of, you know, Yiddish-speaking immigrants that were just flowing into the Lower East Side and offering them to sort of inspire them spiritually, intellectually, but also practically, you know, um, how many hours a day do you have to work? Can you have a day off? What about slack season? You know, there's no unemployment insurance at that point, right? When there's no work, it was called slack season. Like, what are they going to do? And also very, very practically, the forward was open to its readership 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it also offered people from the very first, you know, day of publication, a place to have their mail delivered before they even had an address. Mm. And these are all kind of, you know, features in the publication that lead to the Bintel brief eventually. But it starts with the fact that you can have your mail sent to the forward building, you can come to the building, and you can actually tell people in your family, you know, I'm going to be arriving, blah, 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 you know, meet me at the forward building or come and get me from the forward building if they weren't able to get out to Ellis Island or whatever. And you said it launched in 1897, but the building yes. dates back to 1911. So when, why here? Why did they build this, this building here? East Broadway for Yiddish speakers is what Newspaper Row, further downtown, where the forward actually started out was 14 Duane Street. You can see that on our oh. early masthead too. The first business manager they had was like a very little known figure in New York history, but he's very critical for us. His name was Marcus Yaffe. And Marcus had the ability to get them a mortgage, get them rent, find them a bill. He was just like magic. So he was their first... A business manager and it was Yaffe supposedly who got them like they were moving around they were on Christie at one point they had a uh, canal street in Christie they took over a loft like finally they, they, you know when they write about the early buildings they're like they were dark mm-hmm. we were 15 stories up to get water we had to climb out of the window and go down to the pump in the backyard <laughs> they, you know they all like the residents I mean it's, it yeah, sounds totally. like you're talking about totally. people living in the neighborhood and as 
circulation grew and as advertising and ads they had stability they were able to buy through marcus yaffe's efforts by their first line type machine and at that point editorial and business could be together and they needed a building they had you know that much going on they were able to hire more writers and so they do move to east broadway when in 1911 they decide to break ground they've, they've got enough circulation at this point by 1910 it hits like a hundred thousand distribution wow. so they're making money actually by circulation and at that point they've got great advertising too this newly emerging Yiddish market and they had classifieds right people were talking to each other also through the classifieds long story short they moved to uh, Broadway they have like a three maybe five tenement building five story and then when they go to break ground a lot of people don't know this either they it's very common you know in New York when you break ground to hit water right they're mm -hmm. all the rivulets the yes, tributaries uh -huh. and the two rivers they hit a gusher Ooh. and people came from all over the neighborhood to grab the water <laughs> thinking it was wow. like it was like this was their forward this was their holy forward water Whoa. so you know that's, that's <laughs> wow you know. And, and you know remember people didn't have running water so mm -hmm. understandable it was summer even before the forward came to the seward park area there was this extremely popular column already running in the newspaper this this column called a bintel brief when did the column debut and can you t describe like what it was about in those early years the legend is that in 1903, they already, Abraham Khan, you know, a notable, he had already had a novel published. He was, a, he had written for other well-established New York uh, papers. And he believed that two things. One, he wanted the paper to be what we say in Yiddish, a Zeitung, which is either lively or an actual living organism, which newspapers strive to be. And also he believed that life was more interesting than any kind of fiction that any writer could could come up with so he was like you know i see that they're coming to the building to get their mail i see they're all coming in for suggestions for advice they're writing to us and asking us let's pitch them back and say yeah send us some letters tell us some good stories tell us what's going on in your life so they started in 1903 but it took till 1906 for them to really get the format and the letter uh that was first published in 06 that really you know, caught Khan's attention and his uh, labor editor, his like city desk person, Leon Gottlieb, was a letter um, from a you know a woman in a tenement. Her family, when they when they have slack season, when they don't have work and it stretches into you know a period of unemployment, they have a gold watch, a pocket watch that they pawn. And you know, her neighbor comes over for tea or something one day, and she notices the watch is missing, and she doesn't want to call out the neighbor. She doesn't want to go to the police, right? So she writes to the forward and tells the story, and that's kind of the first letter that gets published as a bintel brief. What what did the editors say was the right thing to do in this case where you have a stolen watch? Like, spoiler alert, sometimes they don't actually write that much, but they let the person, this is one of those kind of letters where they let the person just like reel out, you know, the whole story, tell us everything that's going on. And they actually publish the entire letter. And by the time she gets to the end, she, she's saying that the reason she's actually sending it to the Bintel Brief and the Bintel Brief was also a huge form of public service journalism for the forward. So this is an example of that where they just, you know, she she rolls out that whole Megillah, that whole story in it. And she says, I'm writing to the forward because I don't want to embarrass her and I don't want to shame her. I know she reads the Bintel Brief. Mm -hmm. So I know she's going to read this and I know she knows it's her. So I'm telling her through this, if mm -hmm. you bring that back or mm -hmm. bring me the pawn ticket either way nothing more has to be said or has to be done and you know you can even come visit me and just place it back <laughs> i won't look i won't like like the whole emphasis was just like no shame 
know? <laughs> well, that's a smooth transition, actually, to the present day. And the forward is still around, and so is the column, a bental brief. Now, for the 21st century, also a podcast hosted by Gina and Lynn. So to get uh, both of you in here, Lynn... Could tell us about the podcast, how it's sort of organized, and the motivation for turning it into an audio podcast. I think in a way, uh, turning it into an audio podcast brings back part of the flavor Mm -hmm. of the way Hannah described the original forward building. Jodi Rodoran, the forwards editor, that was a, a, a sort of beacon of an idea that she came in with, that this is how I envision a bintel brief, because it really allows, of course, you know, it never was... I'm not saying that it went back to its days of being a live mm-hmm. conversation, but the, but the forward building and the forward as, as an institution was a very alive institution, Was a, had a real you know beating heart of a community. And there's something about audio. Before it was a podcast, it was also an online, it, you know, it, it then became an online column, which of course invites interaction and conversation. But there's something very forwardy and something very Jewish about allowing it to be um, an audio conversation where there is direct and live back and forth mm-hmm. and give and take. And so we've we incorporated that also into the way we eventually develop the structure, which is loosely that Gina and I discuss the question at hand. And these are new questions, by the way, not not rehashing old questions. But then Hannah comes in with an old question, um, an even early question, that even if the circumstances are completely archaic or the mm-hmm. or the topic of our conversation is, you know, Facebook or sex parties, <laughs> oh which we can get into if you want. First time that's um, been said on the Bowery Boys. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, I'll say it again if you want. <laughs> Even if the topic varies, obviously, from, se- from, from, from decade to decade, Hannah is brilliantly able to find a letter that often in surprising ways touches upon the same themes that we're talking about, whether it's community or loyalty. And so, th- yeah, that's... <laughs> that's a sex party um that's really how uh, and don't forget our mental blitz lynn where we take like a rapid fire question and give advice oh, yeah. off the cuff in a minute so there's oh, that yeah. as well. oh. that's true yes we close gina i also i got excited about sex party and forgot we also invite expert guests onto the show to mm-hmm. address the same theme uh less about giving right. another version of the advice but more about you know digging even deeper into mm-hmm. the themes that we've kind of exposed and then we do, yes, then we do a, a, a lightning round at the end. Gina, can you give us any ideas or any samples of questions that you get in or, or the types of questions that you like to answer? The types of questions that I like? Well, the, definitely would be two sets of answers between the questions that we get in and the questions <laughs> that I like to answer. And, you know, sometimes I like to answer the questions that are uncomfortable. You know, this past season mm-hmm. we had a question that uh, from a young person that involved a D&D quest gone awry, where she was struggling with the fact that her high school friends, whom she was about to leave because she was going off to college, had basically had constructed this quest that involved ICE agents and family separation. And it felt like that's not a laughing matter. And I think particularly for a Jewish kid who's got family history, of family separation, of being in that type of environment, it felt like that was a tough question to answer and to hear that that's what's happening Mm -hmm. in high school. You know, we see the news and we see what's Mm -hmm. happening on the world stage, but it's also happening in individuals, people's lives with their friends. Like, it's a tough place to be in right now. So I like the questions that make us think. Um, I also like like the questions like Sex Party Rabbi that make us chuckle. Those are great, too. (laughs) (laughs) 
How do you construct good advice for people? I think good advice starts with good questions. And so from mm-hmm. the very beginning, from the moment we see a question, Lynn and I are sort of communically turning it over and over and over with each other. And then we turn it over with our producer and who helps us sort of begin to think about what would walking someone through this question, the questioning, the answering, and then the application of the advice. And then we also think about who's involved, who were the parties. You know, we have to do a little bit of tea leaf reading, crystal balling too, in mm-hmm. terms of like, what does this person want to be true once they get our advice? And so all of that gets woven into what we hope to make you know, a lively conversation that we also bring in a blast from the past with Hana and then also someone else to sort of cast a little bit of light or shadow on what it is we have to say too. What we bring, and I think this is true of any good advice, if you're coming from a consistent set of principles, like someone else could give you equally sort of objectively good advice that just comes, you know, should you stay, should you go? You could make a great case for either. Coming from a set of consistent principles. And it just so happens that the principles, broadly speaking, that we apply in most cases are Jewish. Now, are there a zillion principles that one could call Jewish? Of course, there's a zillion, there's a zillion you know, a Jewish identities and movements and, and all that stuff. But generally, um, if we're talking about be kind to the stranger, if we're talking about a general sense of justice, if we're certainly talking about sort of a lefty sense of justice um, in the tradition of the forward, when you kind of put those lighting gels on the question, then you get a certain set of principles that give you advice outcomes. And so that's mm-hmm. that's the way we sort of apply uh, apply the, a, a Jewish perspective. And that's, I think, what helps someone give anyone give what could be called good advice because they're coming from a consistent place and honestly, an ethical and moral place as well. Well, Lynn, Gina, and, and Hannah, thank you so much for sharing the history of the forward with us and and continued success with a Bintel Brief podcast. Thank, thank you so you. much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks to Hannah Pollack, Gina Green, and Lynn Harris for joining us on the show today. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some historic images of the Seward Park area and a look at the many places that we discussed in today's show, including those newsies on the steps of the forward building. (laughs) Yes. Thanks to all of you who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com, where for just a small monthly contribution, you'll get our brand new podcast Mm. called... Side Streets, a bi-weekly show produced by Kieran Gannon, where we look at some aspect of New York City and are free to go down side streets, tangents, if you will, and we pull in a lot of old nostalgia for the New York that we remember. Yes, um, and still celebrate. It's kind of like the Bowery Boys New York City Nostalgia Hour. Um, in mm-hmm. the in the first episode of Side Streets that is available now to patrons, Greg and I go very deep into some of our favorite restaurants from the past and present. Shea Josephine to Kanji Village, from the restaurant America to Mars Twenty One Twelve. 
Oh, I mean, we say that we talk about this on the show, but like, what would what would I do to get Mars twenty one twelve back? Right <laughs> for those pre theater drinks. Will someone please reopen Mars twenty one twelve, please? Plus, we talk about the best pizza, historic restaurants that we wish we had eaten at, and of course, our favorite diners. And so much more. And in the next episode of Side Streets, Greg and I will be spending the episode talking about our Lower East Side experience. And trust me, we have some stories to tell. <laughs> stories that were not not suited for the regular podcast here, but I think some of you will be very interested in hearing them. So that is... Like, why was I walking by Girdle's Bakery at three in the morning? That's Side Streets... Our new patron-only show, and you can get that at patreon.com slash Boys. And a special thanks to our new patrons, Adrian S. from Rye, New York, Mary I. from Hawaii, Oliver M. from Williamsburg, Virginia, and additional patrons Barbara H., Dan E., Bill H., Natalie U., Richard R., Tony W., Kurt G., and Jill J. Thank you all for supporting the Bowery Boys. Thanks, everybody. If you are not yet a listener of The Gilded Gentleman, our spin-off podcast hosted by Carl Raymond, you must check it out. He has some extraordinary shows slated for the month of December, including a show on Christmas in Old New York. And just in time for the new year, an entire episode on the history of champagne. Mm, champagne, bubbles. Tom. Bubbles. <laughs> That's all coming in December on the Gilded Gentleman podcast. Subscribe and listen today. And head over to Bowery Boys Walks because it's time for those walks through Christmas in old New York. We've got a whole lineup of them ready to go. That is a tour that's also available for private groups and families and and companies. So that sells up quickly, but we've got tickets available right now. Along with walks through the Gilded Age, of course, the Lower East Side, Historic Hotels of Midtown, Tribeca, Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses, and so many more. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.